One of the most highly respected biographers uh, before the public right now is Mark Elliott, and he has penned thorough and, and fascinating biographies of a number of luminaries, including books about Steve McQueen, Clint Eastwood, Paul Simon. Uh, I actually spoke with Mr. Elliott about his biography of Paul Simon, Jimmy Stewart, Ronald Reagan, many, many more. His most recent book is called Charlton Heston, Hollywood's Last Icon. And of course, Charlton Heston needs no introduction, but he does need a thorough biography because he is in some respects now a somewhat misunderstood character uh, or figure in in part because of some of the uh, political activity which uh, was a very significant part of his uh, later life and and career and uh, some of those headlines which he generated in a sense obscure a more complex picture and a a long and uh, and 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 fruitful career and and life that uh, is is worth careful examination, and Mark Elliott has done exactly that with this uh, very interesting book, published by uh, Day Street, an imprint of William Morrow. Again, the book Charlton Heston, Hollywood's Last Icon. And Mark Elliott, we welcome you back to the morning show. Uh, it's good to be back. Thank you. I'm really really happy to be uh, talking with you. Uh, tell us what drew you in particular to the figure of Charlton Heston. Why did you think he would be somebody who would be, in a sense, uh, worth the time and trouble and energy and effort uh, in, in terms of writing a full-length biography? Well, I've always been interested in those icons who are just a little bit off the center of the bullseye, uh, going all the way back to Phil Oaks and uh, straight through to Clint Eastwood, and uh, Jack Nicholson. Uh, there are just some people who have amazing staying power, uh, and Heston was one of them. You know, uh, the average lifespan of an actor at the top of his game is eight or nine years, and that's that's generous. Um, for for women in in film, it's really only about four or five years. So Heston had a career that spanned more than a half a century. And I think that when you can accomplish that, um, that's something. That, that's something real important and uh, worth examining. Uh, and on top of that, as you indicated earlier, much of the accomplishments that he was able to achieve were overshadowed by events that happened really in the last years of his life, uh, into the 70s of his life. Um, uh, I was always interested in, in Hollywood. I think personally that the scholarship of uh, Hollywood history is really still very primitive, that there just hasn't been a lot of uh, real in-depth looking at the, the, the studio system, the industry of Hollywood, and its greatest players. So what I've done here is I've tried to look at, look at all three of them through um, the lens that puts Charlton Heston in the forefront. Hmm. So that's, that's kind of why I, I really devoted a couple of years of my life to this book. I would love to know what ended up being the most useful 
resources uh, to which you turned, and 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 resources, of course, I'm sure includes uh, some of the people that you interviewed. I would be very curious to know who was. Uh, in a sense, uh, especially helpful to you. And I also want you to say a word about the considerable amount of writing that Mr. Heston himself did. And uh, how helpful was was that, the, the writing of Mr. Heston himself? And how did you go about using that uh, uh, in, in the most beneficial way with your own project? Well, those two questions kind of run together. So let me start with um, um, saying that Writing a biography, uh, a real biography, is really a detective um, chore. Uh, You become the detective, and you start really with um, a subject that you don't really know that much about, and you go through and you make the connections and you find people and you find incidents and you begin to put together the life like like a grand puzzle. After about... I would say seven or eight months of doing some research on Heston, and I always begin when I write about Hollywood at the Academy's own library in Beverly Hills. I I knew that Heston's son, Frazier, was a producer and that he still had offices uh, in Hollywood. So I wrote a letter to him explaining what I was doing, Um, pointing out what I've done in the past and asking for access to uh, Heston's private letters, diaries, journals, photos, uh, clippings, uh, all of that. And uh, we got together, uh, Frazier and I, and uh, the family lawyer. We talked about it. um, And then he came back to me a few days later and said, okay, we're in. Now, the deal was no editorial control, because this is not an authorized biography, but uh, factual input was something I was very, very eager to have, and all this wealth of material that nobody had really bothered to look at. So it was a combination of access to his private papers, to his letters, to his journals, and uh, being able to talk extensively with the son, Frazier Heston, the daughter, Holly Heston Rochelle, who lives in New York City. And I even got to meet uh, Lydia Heston, who is the widow of Charlton Heston, although she wasn't really able to uh, give an interview. She's a little frail and in her 90s, but it was still wonderful to meet her. And as I got to know the Heston family, you know, sometimes you can do all the research in the world, and you can't quite get the real handle on um, your subject. Working with these people opened up a world to me that I really didn't uh, know and couldn't find in, in secondary research. So this was one of those instances where everything fell together beautifully. Uh, and uh, my job then became to take all of this and um, uh, kind of make it sing, make it work as, um, as a biography, as a work of entertainment, and hopefully as some uh, Hollywood scholarship there, which is sorely needed in terms of the background of the book. You, uh, you mentioned Mr. Heston's uh, wife, and uh, they were uh, a couple for, I think, over 60 years, if I remember correctly. 
It's about 65 years. Yeah. Um, and uh, what, what, Yes, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say uh, one thing that can be said about Mr. Heston uh, for all the ups and downs of his uh, professional career and, of course, for kind of a striking veer that he takes politically uh, from the right to the left, or from the left to the right, I should say, uh, there is there's actually, uh, for the most part at least, calm tranquility uh, when it comes to his own personal life. In a sense, is that at all a detriment to someone like you uh, writing a biography? Is there a small little part of you that wishes uh, there had been more, in a sense, more turbulence to write about in terms of this aspect of his life? Well, not really, because uh, my job is to tell you who he is, not really to tell you who I wish he was or <laughs> uh, what I wish he had done. That That's really not um, uh, what I think a good biographer does. But in terms of the marriage, any marriage uh, that lasts 65 years is going to have some bumps along the way. And um, you have to remember, I think, that uh, several things. First of all, Lydia, Lydia Heston, the woman he married, was the first woman he had ever gone out with. Uh, so he he wasn't really a player in that sense. He was a kind of a country kid, raised in the backwoods, not a lot of exposure to um, any kind of social milieu. So he, he was kind of... Um, you know, sheltered in uh, not necessarily a good way by the events of his early life. So when he met Lydia, um, you know, when he was eight years old, he was taken away from his beloved father. Uh, His mother had married uh, the father. um, I'm not really sure still why, because the mother was sophisticated, uh, urbane, um, came from a, a Chicago family uh, of many generations, married uh, Carter, John Carter, and um, uh, Russell Carter, rather, and moved into the woods with him. He was, he was a, an outdoor man and a construction worker, and, and very close to um, the boy, uh, uh, John Charles Carter, which was his given name. Um, then at the age of eight years old, the mother one day told the young boy to pack his bags, and um, they were going on a trip. It was only after they arrived in the South where the mother's sister had married a very prominent doctor that she told the boy, the mother told the boy, that uh, they were never going home again. He was never going to see his father again, and she was going to marry somebody else by the name of Heston. And that's, of course, how Heston got his name. And she said, from now on, you're Charlton Heston. So that was traumatic for him. And one thing that he always uh, kept in the back of his mind was that he never wanted to do to his children or to himself what his mother had done to him, meaning that when he had children, he wanted to make sure that he would never put them through the trauma of divorce. And on the other side of that, he never wanted to go through what his father went through. So no matter what happened, um, he, he, told, he told his daughter one time when, he, when Heston and his wife were having a little bit of a, of a rough patch that he would rather go back in the Army 
uh, fight again uh, the the Japanese on missions uh, over the Aleutian Islands than to ever get a divorce. That's how traumatic it was for him. So, and added on to all of that was the fact that in the beginning, when uh, they were both struggling uh, actors in New York City trying to get work, she actually got work before he did, theater work. And um, when he started to get work and, and begin his real career in uh, film, she had to give hers up. And that's, of course, a very... 50s thing today when you hear that you, you know you say really why but uh, in the 50s uh, that was the way it was um, in in marriages the idea that if you wanted a marriage to last the wife had to give up her career and take care of the home well that was very frustrating for for Lydia and it was the basis for so many of their their bumps in the road now, to think about Heston, he was big, tall, handsome, um, charming, and uh, a movie star acting on screen with some of the most beautiful women in the world. And here was his wife um, having to be kind of chained to the house. So she, she decided to take the kids and go with him every time he went on location. Well, part of that was to make sure nothing happened, but also... She wanted to share a little bit in the excitement. And I think when you look back, understanding that, and you realize that Heston really wasn't uh, a romantic leading man. He was much more of an action figure, uh, a big spectacle filmmaker uh, than a romantic leading man. I think part of it was that he he didn't want to be tempted. He didn't want to... Uh, get so involved on screen with one of these actresses that that involvement might drip over to real life. And I think Lydia also was very aware of that, and so part of the reason she went on these sets was to kind of make sure that nothing happened. So it was, it was not completely easy and not completely smooth, but I think uh, his commitment to making this marriage work um, is admirable and um, succeeded. So he, even when they had these bumps, um, he managed to hold it all together. Hmm. We're speaking with Mark Elliott about his newest book, Charlton Heston, Hollywood's Last Icon. Uh, Mr. Elliott has written uh, highly regarded biographies of all kinds of other uh, Hollywood luminaries, including uh, Steve McQueen, Michael Douglas, Clint Eastwood, John Wayne, among among many, many others. Uh, one of the uh, things you say about Charlton Heston, that once he began scoring great success uh, in the world of film uh, in the 1950s, was that he, like all great actors, worried a great deal about the sustainability of his success, the sustainability of his career. And indeed, uh, once he reaches the apex of his professional career with uh, Ben-Hur and winning the Best Actor Oscar for that uh, performance, uh, he, like so many others, uh, finds his fortunes, in a sense, diminishing a bit uh, as an actor, at least when it came to mainstream Hollywood work. Uh, what is your best understanding of what was going on in terms of the ebb and flow and the waxing and waning of Charlton Heston's 
uh, uh, greatness in Hollywood? Well, uh, to begin with, uh, he, he was in the three biggest uh, money-making, most successful films, live action of the 50s. Uh, the third one was the first one he made, which was the greatest show on earth. That was a dark horse, best uh, picture uh, Oscar winner, directed by Cecil B. DeMille. And uh, that was a complete um, smash hit and made him a known, a known actor. Uh, then a few years later, he made The Ten Commandments for DeMille again, and that, that became the uh, biggest film of the 50s. So uh, early in his career, he, he's in two of the biggest films of the 50s. And then in 1959, he makes Ben-Hur. Uh, he wins an Academy Award as Best Actor, and that film becomes the biggest film. So the three top <laughs> films of the 50s, except for animated films by Disney, all have Charlton Heston in them. Still a relatively young man, and and you really can't be any bigger than that. <clears throat> Excuse me. You really can't be any bigger than that. Uh, at um, at that early time in your in your professional career, so he, he hits it big and hits it quick, and then um, he, he makes a couple of moves that aren't the best uh, and not the most thought out. For instance, he does a film called El Cid, which is which takes place in the 12th century, and it's about the uh, about a Muslim. African Muslim invasion of Spain. That's a subject that not a lot of Americans knew or cared about or even heard of. I mean, America in the 50s was was not aware of anything about Muslims uh, the way we are today. I mean, the most the average film-going American knew was Bob Hope in Morocco, that those, you know, where Muslims were portrayed as uh, kind of goofy, um, kingdom, crazy guys. Um, and so this film, while it was admirable in terms of its historical content, had no audience in America. Uh, it was, in fact, <clears throat> financed by um, overseas producers who... Uh, who was at, were able to raise the money as long as the film was made in Spain, where it was all shot. So uh, there's, a, there's a career move that, in retrospect, is kind of questionable and really begins a series of films that Heston makes that are uh, high-quality movies but don't have much of an audience. And by the mid to late 60s... Um, his career has really hit a, a kind of an ebb. And um, most of the time in Hollywood, when that happens, your career is over. But with Heston, he was able to bounce back. And that's, that's part of what I was talking about in the beginning, where it, when you have someone whose career can sustain 50-plus uh, years, you're talking about somebody remarkable. And um, that's a good word, I think, to use for Heston. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, how about the uh, the matter of his uh, involvement with, for instance, Martin Luther King? Uh, for instance, the role that Charlton Heston played in that dramatic march on Washington uh, in the summer of, of 1963. Uh, 
tell us, well, first of all, remind our listeners about the role that he played on that day and, uh, and in a sense, how characteristic that was of who Charlton Heston was and what his values were at that point in time. Well, Heston was, um, first of all, he was the greatest generation war hero. And that's very important, I think, throughout his career to understand that uh, when those soldiers fought, they had a clear mission, and that was defending democracy. Uh, Unlike later wars where the mission became a little bit clouded, World War II was very clear. We were fighting to save democracy. So he's a product of that. When he came out of the war, for the first uh, uh, years of his life, he was very liberal. When uh, when uh, Adlai Stevenson, for those old enough to remember, uh, Stevenson in 1956, very liberal, won the Democrat uh, nomination, and Heston supported him. In 1960, when JFK got the nomination, um, Heston actively supported him, campaigned for him. Um, in 1963, when uh, Martin Luther King was going to march on Washington, he, he was smart enough to know that he would need some faces and some names to make this even bigger. He went to Harry Belafonte. Belafonte went to Heston and Marlon Brando, significantly two very successful uh, Caucasian actors. They all agreed to join the march. Uh, So Heston was one of those actors who actively supported the civil rights movement. A lot of people tend to forget that because of what went on uh, later on in his career. But he was he was a big liberal, and uh, of course, when he marched with Marlon Brando, Brando wanted to chain himself to the Lincoln Memorial, and it was Heston who said, "I, I, I don't think so, Marlon. Let's just <laughs> let's just march and not uh, not go to that extreme." I mean, that was Brando, and that was Heston. So um, he did march, and uh, he was a big supporter of all of that. I think the change begins in uh, 1968 when Heston decides to visit the troops in Vietnam because of all that he was hearing in the counterculture movement about how these soldiers weren't doing their job and they shouldn't have even been there, they should have resisted. And and people may not remember back that far, the soldiers did not come home to great um, chants of thank yous and parades. They were shunned. They, They were... They were partly blamed for what was going on in Vietnam, even though most of them were were drafted. So Heston wanted to go there and visit with them. And he did, and he took the names of every soldier, uh, their family uh, names, their phone numbers, their addresses. And when he got back, he sent letters or called every single family member to say their, their son was okay and he had visited them. This was extremely important to him and to the soldiers. And when he saw, again, what went on in 1968 at, at the Democratic Convention in, in, uh, uh, at Columbia and, and all these colleges, uh, Berkeley, he, he moved a little bit more to the right because he thought that liberalism had gotten a bit out of hand and they were blaming the wrong people. Um, so... 
that really begins his shift toward uh, first to the center and then on over to the right, but only politically. Socially, he remained a, a, a liberal, um, for really, for the rest of his life, with his work with the AFI, with uh, his going up against Reagan, uh, very, very uh, relevant today, by the way, when Reagan wanted to cut all of the um, uh, foundation money for the arts, uh, which supported the AFI and so many other um, film-related um, uh, um, operations, uh, Reagan uh, uh, was cutting about 80% of that budget, and Heston went to him and fought to get that money restored. And in the end, Reagan restored most of it. So what is the significance of that? Well, um, that allowed the AFI to remain in existence, the American Film Institute. In the beginning, the AFI's goal was to preserve film, which was deteriorating in cans in the Hollywood uh, studios. You know, 80% of silent film was lost because of negligence. And so the AFI began a program to save film. And it also began a training program for actors, directors, writers to learn the craft of film in Hollywood. So all of this are things that people may not know about Heston, that he was just as important off screen in Hollywood as he was on screen. And um, uh, all of that kind of got buried, I think, with the, um, with, with the NRA stuff, unfortunately, um, uh, in terms of who he really was and what he really accomplished. Right. I mean, whatever one might think about the NRA or what Charlton Heston had to say about that, the, 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 for sure the shame is the way in which that one moment in the minds of some has obscured uh, all of the other things that Charlton Heston was about. And uh, your wonderfully written biography, of course, uh, offers us a, a rich and detailed portrait. The book, again, is titled Charlton Heston, Hollywood's Last Icon, published by Day Street, a division of William Morrow. Mark Elliott, thank you so much for writing this really interesting book and for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about it. Best wishes to you. Thank you. It was great to talk to you again, and uh, I look forward to speaking to you again in the future.